don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. It is five by people five to make this world better for everyone. This is unwasted with imperfection. Hello and welcome back to the Unwasted Podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. Now, everybody knows that farming is hard work, but a lot of us still fantasize about quitting our nine to five and starting a small farm somewhere. So, how hard is it to start farming, really? The reality is that grueling physical labor and unpredictability of Mother Nature aside, the economics of farming are really brutal, especially for small farmers and newer farmers. According to the USDA, only one out of every two small farms survives beyond their first five years, and out of those, only one in four survive after 15 years. What makes it so hard to be a small farmer, and how can we make farming more sustainable economically and environmentally? Today's guest is here to share some lessons from a career in agriculture, specifically around what we need to do to make farming as a business something that more people can get into and thrive in for generations. Noelle Fogg-Elliball, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Riley. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I am really excited to get into this. I think farming is one of the most crucial, but perhaps misunderstood or under-understood topics in America today. I don't know if that's controversial to say. What do you think? Uh, no, I think that's, I, you know, to your point earlier, a lot of people, I think, fantasize about it and don't necessarily realize what it takes. Um, you know, our, our population and our society is increasingly urbanized and less connected to the food that we eat and where it comes from. So that's, that's the debacle that we're in. Yeah. You know, you've spent time farming yourself. As I understand it, you had an apprenticeship in Nevada farming. What was that like? Uh, yeah, um, and I also volunteered and worked on some farms on the East Coast in the Boston area as well. Um, uh, uh, it was <laughs> some really eye-opening experiences, to be honest. Um, like you said, long days, yeah. really hard physical work, exhausting. Um and I think what I really came to appreciate about farming and farmers themselves is that to be a successful farmer, you have to wear so many hats and you are such a, in such a dynamic environment. Um, you know, you have to be an agronomist, a mechanic, you have to be adept at logistics and marketing and a manager of people and a and be able to manage the business side of things. Um, and that's what I really saw very clearly in my experience on small farms in Nevada and on the East Coast is, um, you know, these folks are truly incredible people that are doing all of this work for us to eat and eat well. And I think we way too often overlook or undervalue their contributions to our lives and to our society. Um, you know, it takes, it takes somebody with a lot of grit, a lot of perseverance, um, and, and hence, you know, a, a really deep commitment to a larger purpose, um, to, to keep doing what they do, feeding community, teaching your community, 
reconnecting them with how food is produced and why that matters, stewarding the land. Um, and they can't do that work unless they can support themselves and their families. And that's what I saw really clearly in my experience um, and really saw a need for, for support around that and, and just helping them get to a point of being viable and being able to continue to, to do that really important work long-term. Yeah. You know, how long are the days? So people know, <laughs> like, when did you start in the morning? Um, well, I was on, you know, it was a pretty small, um, diversified farm with kind of multiple locations around the periphery of Reno, Nevada. Um, I say I started probably around 6.30 or so in the morning, which is really not that bad um, mm -hmm. in terms of most farms. Um, not a serious production farm, and I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and in the summer, you you go until the sun goes down, which is really, uh, you know, eight, nine o'clock. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So and you're you're on your feet then for that sounds like that's over twelve hours just like on your feet out picking and moving around and all that or uh yeah, I mean it depends on your your role in the farm, right? Um and whether you're kind of and how big the farm is, what the scale of the farm is. So um if you're in my case, uh, you know, an apprentice uh in Nevada, I was doing a lot of seeding and planting and transplanting and um and harvesting as well as you know packing CSA boxes, um leading community tours, kind of you know, turning over compost, which I don't recommend doing manually in large batches. That's somewhat of a traumatic experience. Yeah. <laughs> Not my cup of tea. Um, yeah, all sorts of things, but really depends on the kind of farm that we're that we're talking about. Yeah. For for you, what did you find to be some of the biggest challenges? I mean, you mentioned turning over the compost, but uh, what were some <laughs> what were some of the other things that kind of struck you as wow, this is a really hard part about this line of work? Yeah, I think personally the yeah the just the grueling physical labor um you know even being a young person was i was and being you know growing up in athletics it was still really challenging for me yeah um i think the other part that was particularly hard for me we had some we had some um poultry on the farm ducks and, and chickens um the slaughter um was really challenging um i I honestly could never get myself to do it. Um, yeah. I did the processing, you know, after the slaughter. Um, but being that close to the source of your food, I think is it's pretty profound to understand and and witness the fact that you're taking uh, an animal life in order to sustain yourself and and those around you. Um, so that was that was eye opening as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like this work kind of primed you for the work that you do now. You know, for folks that don't know about Kitchen Table Advisors, can you share a bit about what you do and kind of why this work matters in terms of these issues you discovered yourself, um, you know, farming? Yeah, absolutely. So so like I said, you know, I think this that those experiences on farms really 
opened up my eyes in terms of what the financial struggles are for these folks, the important work they're doing, and the fact that it is really easy to burn out and it's not easy to make a living or a good living. Mm. Um, and that they're, you know, these farmers are in it not to run successful businesses or be business people per se, right? They're in it because they want to feed their community healthy food. They want to take care of the land and steward their ecosystem in a, in a healthy way. Um, and there's really a, a general like lack of, of business support and, and knowledge fundamentally that we all have, I think in growing up, um, in this country, especially, it's not something that's emphasized. And, you know, so I kind of came full circle back to my, my background in economics and undergrad and really thought, okay, I know that I am not personally cut out for this work in terms of like, I'm not going to start my own farm, at least right now. And I have profound respect for what these people are doing. What can I do to help them keep doing this? And economics and and the financials of that was was really my personal answer to that. So I I did some some work on the East Coast um, with an independent consultant that did similar kind of business advising work, helping farms on one-off project basis, um, as well as some farmland access work, and then came to California about three years ago. And at that time, Kitchen Table Advisors um, was just starting to really grow their team. They had just come out of sort of a, a pilot phase um, of working one-on-one um, with 10 farmers in Northern California. Um, so I actually hadn't heard of them before moving here and came across them through various conversations in my network and was just like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I care about and exactly the kind of work I want to do kind of niche, (laughs) Um, but so excited that that kitchen table advisors was there. And so, so what we do is we really, we focus on that long-term economic viability of these small, sustainable community minded farmers. Um, And we work with them very intensively through one-on-one business advising over the course of three years. So that's pairing them up with one of our on-staff business advisors um, who are grounded in in the local community, grew up either farming themselves or in farm working families, um, have businesses um, themselves in the past or have a business background. So they work one-on-one really intensively with with a business advisor for three years um, on all sorts of things that you would, you know, probably think of in terms of business advising from like getting set up in QuickBooks, um, basic cash flow management, um, understanding when it's appropriate to, or when they can apply for, for a mortgage if they want to purchase farmland at some point in the future, to all of the other aspects of running a farm business successfully and the challenges that they face in that. So um, accessing appropriate capital um, and that's can be a complicated thing as a, as a farm accessing appropriate markets Mm. and um, 
social and and people capital that that comes along with that um and land farmland is a huge challenge and barrier um for a lot of small farmers so help connect them to to those resources as well so that's that's the core of our programs um beyond those three years we it's really a long long-term commitment we support them beyond that it's just a little less intensively um, but we're always there our doors always open in case they have a question or an emergency comes up um anything along those lines um, which i think is a pretty unique way of doing this type of work um, a lot of it in other places is that i've seen is very finite and project-based um and not not necessarily focused on you know the long term that 10 15 years to get them get them past that that work um on the other side of of things so that's our core work at kitchen table advisors we're also now starting over the past year or two to do what we term ecosystem building work mm. so that's it's it's like this push and pull right so the push is the business advising it's it's helping these farmers and and ranchers really navigate an unfriendly environment and get get through it and the pull is the ecosystem building work so it's focusing on specific projects and areas where we can help influence the marketplace to be friendlier to those farmers and give them more power and resources in decision making um you know in the, the david and goliath scenario <laughs> yeah you know i'm curious why is the environment so unfriendly mm. to farmers and new farmers and small farmers because this is something i've heard from a lot of farmers like folks i've talked to it imperfect a quote i heard that really stuck with me was the analogy that gentleman used was it's kind of like wading out into the ocean like there's these kind of small waves you can kind of wade out to but there's this like about halfway out there's these bigger waves that if you don't time it right you just get pummeled mm. and you can't like scale up your operation and that image kind of really stuck with me so i'm curious what is it about this environment that's so hostile or unfriendly for folks to get into yeah and it's really complex um for sure i think there's a few things that that come to mind and a couple of that i'm a couple of them that i already mentioned um so so first of all i think it's important to to define what we mean when we're talking about a small farm or you know a new farm um so the the usda united states department of agriculture defines uh, a small farm as a farm that has annual sales of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less um in my opinion that's somewhat arbitrary um i think a a better way to think about a small farm is in terms of how they operate um mm. so generally they are family run or independently run sole proprietorships um you know they could be on as little as just a few acres if they're if they're growing a, a very high value crop um with high turnover like like greens for example um and up to several hundred or thousand acres if we're talking about um large pasture-based livestock like beef um and Fundamentally, I think a small farm is also defined by the farmer owner is both working in the business, in the field day to day and on the business, right? They're responsible for 
the management of the business and all of those things I mentioned prior, um, you know, the marketing, the logistics, the accounting, whatever it is. Um, so that's kind of how I think of small farm. Um, in terms of a new farmer, um, which I think the USDA definition is actually pretty right on. They define it as anyone, any farm that's in their first 10 years of business, Mm. which in other industries, I think you would think, geez, 10 years, that seems like a really long time. But if you think about it in terms of farming and the natural cycles that farming involves, one year is really one attempt at growing a certain crop or um, you know, a, a couple years in the case of, of large pasture-based livestock, it takes a really long time to hone the craft, um, especially amidst changing weather, climate, and economic conditions. Yeah. So that said, um, with that context, I think um, small farms and beginning farmers really face those that giant wave that you're talking about. Um, in a few different ways. So larger context is that the current political and legal infrastructure of the food and farming industry is skewed very heavily in favor of large corporations. Um, And profits for those businesses hinge on, largely hinge on exploitation of workers and extraction of, of natural resources from the land, as well as, as well as manipulation of democratic decision-making processes. So, so large operators in this sector are really able to leverage their scale um, to take advantage of technology and globalization and lack of antitrust enforcement to really consolidate operations and, and push small farmers out. Small farmers can't compete with that. Hmm. Um, So what that results in then tangibly are small and beginning, small farms and beginning farmers are really, um, really faced with challenges in terms of accessing secure and affordable farmland or rangeland, um, especially in areas that are surrounding urban centers where Mm -hmm. they're competing against housing and urban sprawl and prices are astronomical. they have fewer opportunities for startup and operational capital that fits specifically small farm needs. So loans that, you know, align repayment schedules with their growing season and farm cash flow um, or loan products that, that find creative solutions to lack of a credit background or traditional collateral requirements um, or really have multilingual accessible loan services, um, as well as access to markets. So small farms scale of production generally means that they are often unable to sell to larger food distributors Mm. who are looking to really maximize convenience and efficiency, minimize cost. Um, And so if that, if farmers, small farms aren't able to access those markets, they're they also then are relying on having a direct-to-consumer base who can purchase their products and can afford to pay for the price of producing food responsibly. Um, 
They're also at the whim of market price fluctuations. They are really price takers. Mm. Um, and on the flip side, I think they're often more connected to their local communities and local buyers, independent restaurants, retail, food access programs. Um, and then, then comes the whole behemoth of, of unpredictability in terms of weather and climate change and things that are out of, out of anyone's control largely. Um, and small farms really have a large lack of a a safety net when things like that do go wrong. Mm. And it's kind of a question of not if, but when, um, you know, there'll be a flood or a drought or pests that overtake a crop um, or a market price collapses, you name it. Um, There are really large safety nets for um, federal safety nets for large farms growing commodity crops. Um, And there are fewer things that fit that for small diversified farms. Um, They don't tend to work quite as well as a a safety net for these types of farms. I also think it's really important to add that like all of those challenges are really compounded times 10. If you're a farmer who is facing systemic and institutional discrimination, Mm. so we're talking people of color, immigrants, women, queer farmers, um, they've all historically been left out of USDA programs, including, you know, disaster relief, conservation grants, loan assistance. um, And that's really due to pretty actively discriminatory lending practices, as well as inadequate outreach and assistance to those communities. Wow. (laughs) That is, that is a lot to digest. No, I I appreciate the really thorough answer. It's, it's a lot to sit with and unpack, I think, for all of us. Wow. So I want to unpack this idea of making uh, farming economically sustainable, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of well-meaning progressives like myself tend to get stuck on, like, we need to make farming environmentally sustainable, which is obviously true, and I would argue not. They're related. But I want to yeah. I want to talk about, like, how do you see making farming economically sustainable? Like, why is this such a central of such importance to you and kitchen table advisors. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to say that I actually first came into this work from an environmental perspective myself personally as well. Um, and I think that's a, it's a totally legitimate concern. Um, agriculture and forestry, that industry worldwide contributes to, I think it's close to a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions and our expanding population and food consumption means that more and more land is being taken away from wildlife and forests and ecosystems and waterways are being really seriously damaged. So it's totally legitimate concern. I think the missing link that people don't always see is that you you really can't fundamentally have environmental sustainability without economic sustainability. You can't take care of the environment if you don't take care of the people who are doing the work, right? Yes. Um, it's really it really comes down to the to the people and taking care of other people in our society in our world. Um, 
you know, many large and industrial farms are economically sustainable themselves because they are often, I'm going to go into my like economist speak, but they're largely like externalizing costs, right? The public good isn't being valued. They're extracting and depleting natural resources that are largely not valued in our current market-based economy. So on the flip side, when you have farmers that are investing in the land and building soil health and stewarding and integrating their production with natural ecosystems, that takes a lot more resources. It takes more time, especially labor. Um, and the bottom line is that they, those farmers can't do that important environmental work if they can't first and foremost make a living and take care of themselves and their families. Yeah. So like one analogy, like soil analogy, right? If you, and tell me if I'm going too far into the, the weeds of like farmer speak here. <laughs> no, th- this is good. We're here for the weeds. Please keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, if you, so if you plant the same crop in a field over and over every year and you till the soil and you let it sit bare in the off season and you don't amend the soil with, you know, compost, that's only going to get you so far. And eventually that crop is going to fail because there's no nutrients left in the soil. Um, pests will have discovered it and just overtaken it. They know you plant the same thing there every year. Yeah. And it's the same thing in terms of, of farmers and, and the work that they're doing. If they're not able to, to sustain themselves and their families and have a, a take home, take home living wage um, that is sustainable. Um, if they're not able to, leave the farm honestly once in a while and like have a little bit of balance in their lives if they're not able if they're if they're feeling like they are constantly moving toward burnout Mm. and they're not being they're they're not being sustained as individuals you're gonna they're gonna they're gonna leave the profession right they're they're it's not it's not something they can do long term Um, I think one really interesting example is when you invest in the people that do this important work and they get to that point of being able to be more secure financially and, and support their families and their communities that opens up space for them and time and resources to be able to do even more environmentally important work. So one, one cool example is one of our farmer clients in down in um, Watsonville, California, the central coast area, JSM organics, his name is Javier Zamora. Um, He's been a client with us for, gosh, I think it's at least five years now. And he's grown immensely. He's, been able to purchase farmland. Um, he's supporting other up-and-coming growers on his farmland. Um, he's getting to a point now where he's being—he's able to invest even more and more in his environmental 
practices. Mm. And he's recently switched to non-plastic packaging for his berries, which is maybe sounds trite, but it, in the berry industry, that's a really big deal. Wait, no, that's huge. We literally, I was literally interviewing someone this morning and I was lamenting that there are no non-plastic options for berries. So you're... <laughs> This is so timely and you're you're educating me and everyone that, okay, there is a non-plastic alternative for berries. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there are other farms that are adopting it as well. Yeah. Um, you know, they're these little, they're like cardboard clamshell sort of containers um, and they're becoming, I've seen, so I know JSM Organics, the farm I mentioned is doing that. Um much larger farm homegrown organics i think has started to to do some of that as well so it's it's definitely a, an up and coming thing but it's more expensive for the farmer too yeah and they can't invest in something that's in eco friendly like that unless their finances are in order elsewhere it sounds like so the two sides of sustainability are totally interrelated here yep absolutely yeah i mean let me let me try this out on you. It strikes me as you're, something you're making me think about is that I think in a way we've defined sustainability wrong or in an overly narrow way mm-hmm. that ultimately all these forms of sustainability are really different forms of the same thing in terms of what you said about avoiding burnout, that it's these bad practices will burn out some part of the system, whether that's the people, the land, the soil, the watershed or forests around it. Like on some level, all of these things are different types of sustainability. And we've in a way almost arbitrarily chosen that, well, like we're only really interested in the soil, but like, like you said, the people, that's a form of sustainability too. If no one wants to work in your industry, that is not a sustainable industry. <laughs> yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Mm-hmm. No, that's really important. I think, I mean, one, like this, this example of Mr. Zamora, I think is huge. And I, I'm so, I want to, I want to hear more about the folks you're working with, but I think also just that you're raising awareness that all of this stuff is interconnected and we gotta, we gotta prioritize the people as much as we're prioritizing the land. I think we need to prioritize the people more. I don't, mm. you know, I think the land is a, the land and, and what, what is happening to our our planet environmentally is a is a symptom of the people problem. Yeah, I think. Oh, interesting. You know, and like, think about it in terms of what's happening today with the pandemic. You know, I think people are finally starting to wake up a little bit more to all of the inequities in our society um, that have, you know, that this the pandemic itself is really caused by encroachment of, from my understanding of it, um, but encroachment of, you know, people into, into wild spaces, right? That transmission wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, And I think we're, the people that are most affected by this pandemic are those who are doing the most important essential work. Right, and we're calling them essential workers now. They're always essential. Yeah. We just don't see them, and we don't appreciate their work. Yeah, yeah. I, how do you, how do you think we can get people to really see and appreciate farm workers? Because I totally agree. I think they're kind of this like hidden class of society that is the reason mm-hmm. that folks like you and I can eat lettuce at this point year round, even though lettuce only grows for a very specific part of the year and very specific circumstances, like how do we generate that type of awareness? Do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think. Uh, 
part of me wants to say that I think we all need to slow down and educate mm. ourselves more and yeah. just think about the whole chain of where everything around us comes from and, and appreciate that. Um, you know, I think we really need to acknowledge, we really need to acknowledge the, the stewardship and the resilience of, of really indigenous communities and other BIPOC producers and organizations and their contributions to their communities, um, to the, the good food movement, to the planet. I think, I think everyone should be asking, we should all be asking ourselves what we can do to ensure that small and medium-sized producers and what we can do to help them thrive. You yeah. Know? And farm workers included in that. Yeah. Um, I think educate yourself you know, read, talk to your, talk to the, the farmer at your local farmer's market or wherever, you know, that if you subscribe to a CSA box, understand what they need, where they're coming from, um, connect with other people. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you think about the impact of your work on, um, folks in farming, are there other, what are some, what, what makes you proud? Like, what are some examples of, of folks you've, you've felt like you've really helped them kind mm. of make their life a little bit better, a little bit more sustainable? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you know, I think there's, it's not just, it's not just kitchen table advisors. It's not just their business advisor. It's a whole network of support mm. um that's that's grounding underneath these these farmers um uh, let's see i think some examples that come to mind are one that's probably i am closest to um i do do some business advising myself um mm -hmm. with our farmers and ranchers not it's not my my primary role in the organization, but is, um, a, a family, um, who were, they started their, their operation as, um, as cut flower growers back in the, Ooh, I want to say seventies. Um, um, a Japanese immigrant family that worked their way up. They came over from Japan working in the fields, um, saved and saved and saved eventually purchased a plot of land um with their siblings um started this cut flower business in the 70s um had immense infrastructure um in terms of greenhouses and then in the i think it was in the 90s um cut flower production from south america and central america really really came into the the picture and a lot of those businesses went under yeah um they were able to adapt um and started doing um some some vegetable production um specialty japanese vegetable production specifically um that's what they were familiar with from their their homeland um and 
later on, as the original farm owners got older and older, they're now in their mid nineties. So they're incredible people. They had no one to take over the farm. Um, their, their kids had gone off and done other things. Um, and really the only viable solution for this, this piece of land and this immense infrastructure that they could see was, was selling it or, or leasing it out to, to cannabis growers. Hmm. Um, their daughter um, came back to the farm um, as an adult and said, no, I don't want to see this in my community. This is an incredible resource that we have. I want to, I want to support our community with, with healthy food, not with, not with cannabis production. And so she has, she stepped in um, and had no farming background really outside of growing up on that, that farm, but wasn't, wasn't really involved in it um, that directly as a young person, no business background and was like committed to doing it. And also I think pretty uncertain of the future and if it, if she could make it work and kitchen table advisors decided to take that farm on as a, as a client um, four years ago. And since then, um, we, we worked with her on all sorts of things from, you know, preparing to get loans to help repair some of that immense infrastructure, understanding what her, what her cash flow looks like so she can do that responsibly, um, helping her build connections with, with local markets in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and and she's they're they're really thriving now. They're at a point where she's like they're just rolling. It's just so cool to see, you know, they're like they're selling they're making they're making a, a take a, a profit now that's that's like sustainable. They're hiring on more staff members. Um they're revamping a an organic Fuji apple orchard. Whoa. Um it's it you know it's just it compounds itself when it, when a business like this is is able to thrive and the people running it are able to thrive. Um, they're helping really like mentor other up and coming growers now in the in the area. So that's that's one that that kind of sticks out. But there's a lot of there's a lot of examples. <laughs> yeah, it sounds no, it sounds like really rewarding work in that way that you're you're learning about people's lives and their generational history. And then you're helping inject some hope and optimism and kind of future into their livelihood. That's what, what impactful work to be doing. Yeah. I like to think so. You know, you, you touched on something that I think a lot of us have heard about, which is that there's some pretty sobering statistics about the, out there that the average age of farmers mm. in America keeps increasing in part because like in your story, even young people increasingly don't want to get into farming or even are being told by their parents, do not go into the family business because it's not a viable line of work. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear your take on this phenomenon. Like are the folks you're working with generally younger or older and kind of how have you seen this demographic shift play out? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I think it does vary a little bit depending on where in the U.S. you are. Um, We at Kitchen Table Advisors um, are not necessarily 
seeking out or looking for particularly young farmers, um, and I guess your definition of young is all relative, <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, most of the clients that we take on are generally like mid 40s or under, um, usually under, so pretty, pretty young. Um, and I think it's the, the aging out of our farmer population is definitely still a problem. Although I, I believe as of the last ag census, there is more and more of an uptick in, in young farmers. Mm. Um, but it's a different type of business that they're, they're taking on. They're innovating, they're adapting what they're growing, how they're marketing it. Um, it's not necessarily the, the traditional way of running a dairy in the seventies or the eighties, a dairy operation, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's finding new and innovative ways to produce their products and to market to consumers in a way that's going to, that's going to resonate with people and is going to help them do it long-term. So I don't know. I think it's it's still an issue for sure. And it really does come down to the fact that it's really hard work. And, yeah. it's, and it's it's really hard to make it viable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you see, you see that even outside of farming, that if you look at like, what are the industries people are being told to go into? Because, you know, it's where the money is. It's like investment banking, tech, you know, I guess marketing and and stuff like that. But, you know, there's a reason why we don't have this huge boom of, of like public school teachers, not because that work isn't hmm. important, but because it's not, you know, it's often not very well compensated. I would, I, I see a lot of analogies in farming and honestly, even restaurant work, you know, there's a great need. Well, it's interesting in 2020, but you know, mm-hmm. and so pretty recently, like there's been a ton of need for service workers and in a lot of areas like the Bay Area, it's actually been really hard to find employees in part because people can't afford to live anywhere near where these restaurants are. Yep. And yeah, it's just, it's just a fascinating demographic shift we're seeing, I think, play out in real time in the food world, where increasingly these vital jobs are, are not, they're, they're vital, but not viable. And it seems like that tension is kind of a lot of what your work's all about. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of that, the issues behind that come to down, I personally think that comes down to the, the disparate nature of our economy and the haves and the have nots and the gap between the gap between them and mm-hmm. the people who have a lot of wealth and the people that have very little and that is growing larger and larger. Um, I think that exacerbates a lot of those problems. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my last question for you here is kind of along the lines of, of, of legacy and future generations. You know, as I understand it, you became a mother last year. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So I'm curious, I'm honestly curious to hear how has motherhood changed your worldview specifically along the lines of the type of food system you want to build for future generations? I don't think it has really changed any of my fundamental ideals of, of what I would like our food system to be. I think Fundamentally, I want to see a generation of farms that are thriving, multiracial, multi-gendered, um, embedded in local 
economies that are helping their local communities thrive and feeding feeding people around them, right? Um, that hasn't changed. I think more of what's changed, honestly, is my the the importance that I am that I place on critical and independent thinking. Mm. Um, and I say that because I think in the f- in the food world, we tend to polarize like we do in a lot of aspects of our society. Um, you know, what's good, what's bad. There's no area for gray often, it seems. And I think that that is not the case. I think that there, I think that there's room for the large scale growers. Yes, they can make a lot of improvements, but I think I think it's important, honestly. I think that there's, I think there's room for, and this is me personally speaking. I'm not yeah, yeah. Rep- representing, not representing necessarily anyone else, but I think there's room for genetic engineering. To be honest, you know, I think in in crops, I think if it's done responsibly, and if it's done in a way to support the livelihoods of smallholder farmers internationally, um, it's that one's a really tricky one because the business practices there are questionable, but the, but the technology and the science itself, I think is too often pushed aside as, as unknown and scary. And therefore, you know, if it's not natural or back to the land, we don't want it. Hmm. Um, So I guess in general, like I just, I want, I want my daughter to be able to really dive into the issues and be open-minded about what it's going to take for us to get to a place of, of sustainability for this, for our world and for the people in it. Um, and, and think critically about that. Yeah. Really well said. What an awesome note uh, to wrap up here on. I, that's yeah, that's super touching. I think I want to get to some spe- the speed round questions now. So this, this is our little closer round. Uh, first yeah. one here is: What would you encourage folks to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time? Oh, that's really hard. <laughs> so many things. Um, generally speaking, I'd say try to develop relationships with farmers directly. Um, trust the work that they're doing. Ask them what they need. Support them. Um, if, if learning more about farmers stories and what it takes to, to do this work is interesting, um, I would say check out kitchen table advisors, um, Instagram. We have some really amazing stories on there regularly of our farmer clients. Um, look at the, there's a hashtag on Instagram of know your farmer. Check, Mm. look, check, check that out. Um, there's a, there's a brief online explainer um, on Heal, the Heal Food Alliance's website on growing food as a, as a BIPOC uh, person. That's an incredible short overview of the situation, how we got into the situation that we're in, in terms of um, racial disparities in the food system today. I would encourage people to read that. And then I would say personally, when I was just, kind of getting into this work and exploring what it all meant. Some of the books that I read that were really resonant for me, um, one was Eating Animals. Um, 
Omnivore's Dilemma, which everybody knows is another one. Yeah. My documentary, Food Inc. is another great one. Um, and I'm actually reading a book, speaking of critical thinking and not being polarized, I'm actually reading a book right now that I think is, I'm only partway through, but I think it's great. It's called The Fate of Food mm. by Amanda Little. I think that's a, a great resource as well. Wow. Thank you. Those are amazing recommendations. Um, what is a positive change you made in your life in the past year you think folks should try? I have given up perfectionism, <laughs> uh, especially being a mother in this crazy time. Um, my new mantra is good enough is good enough. <laughs> um, and just being kinder to myself in general. I think we all need to be kinder to ourselves, which will allow us to be kinder to others too. Truly. If you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? Ah, I don't have a go-to dish. I really go to anything that's really involved, honestly, or takes a lot of time and is out of the ordinary. I like to create something that they might get at a nice restaurant. Um, yeah, it's usually something new for me. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what ingredient could you not live without? garlic it's in everything it makes everything taste better it's the base to everything and i'm also like a quarter italian so there's that <laughs> there we are that's a super popular answer it's like usually butter garlic or onions yep practical <laughs> you love it uh what is your least favorite thing to waste any food i'm i hate wasting food i will eat things that are very borderline questionable <laughs> if it's been in the fridge for too long. Um, and the other thing is plastic Ziploc bags. Mm. I will reuse those until they are falling apart. And what is your go-to karaoke song? Uh, that's a hard pass the mic to the next person because <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to inflict that pain on anybody. <laughs> Fair. Uh, who is somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? Oh, there's so many people. I would say, honestly, all of my colleagues at Kitchen Table Advisors, yeah. they're just incredible human beings with so much passion for this work, doing, doing such important things. Uh, and they're just such like, they're like my second family. They're, they're tremendous. Wow. Sounds like you've got an amazing job. <laughs> that's all, <laughs> that's so great to hear. Yeah. I do. Very lucky. And finally, what are you grateful for this week? This week, I'm particularly grateful for my husband, Melly, um, for being such a wonderful father and partner, especially as we weather this pandemic as new parents. Yeah. Well, I hope, I'm sure he already knows that, but I hope he listens to this episode <laughs> and is reminded he's appreciated. Uh, Noel fog well, this has been such a great chat. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the insightful questions. Of it's course. And we'll have, um, oh, well, first I should do the obligatory plug. Uh, where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our, our website is uh, kitchentableadvisors.org. Um, so that's an easy place to, to get an introduction to our work and our, our Instagram, as I mentioned, as well as another, is another great place. Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes, as well as on our website. That's the whole carrot.com where this podcast and all of our podcasts live. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thanks Riley. I really appreciate it.